Hello, Politics Plus Media 101 listeners. We are going to have a program, just me and Justin again, I think the first time in a few shows because we've been bringing on lots of high quality guests so far to start 2023. We've got a pretty solid roster of guests coming up soon. So I think it's going to be a few weeks before we get to another one that's just the two of us chatting. You and me again, my friend. Yeah. So, John, I think today's show will be a little bit different. We'll do a little mishmash of topics where we'll start out discussing the podcast in general, what we're trying to accomplish, why we are different. Then we'll get into some news topics real quick to scratch the itch of our listeners, also to scratch the itch of us because we are keenly interested in the topics we will be discussing very briefly. And then we'll get into the Oscar nominations, John, which is near and dear to your heart. But Mr. Gunnison, I I wanted to kind of outline the the podcast a little bit and what we're doing here because it it is different, right? We're not just a straight news show or a straight politics show per se. And the first thing I wanted to say is how do we pick our topics? What are we focused on? It's stuff that you and I find important, right? This could be sports. It could be movies. It could be politics. It could be different angles of politics. However, we really try and focus our topics on obviously what is in the news. And if it is in the news, trying to peel back the layers to give folks a more inside look. Uh, but also we're, we're going to talk about things that, you know, you might not get on CNN or Fox News or MSNBC, such as in one of our last episodes, we get into arcane parliamentary procedure because to us, that stuff is important and will come up in the years to come, the next two years during the 118th. Yeah, Justin, I think being able to do a long form deep dive like the one that we did on Venezuela, I think is pretty valuable. Getting your news from television, I think, is generally not so bad, especially if you're watching high quality programs like PBS News Hour. But there are limits when you have to fit in all of the day's headlines in, in one program, in a 60 minute program, and um, have a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And the opportunity to bring on a really well-read expert and spend an hour, an hour and a half talking about one topic and kind of learning as much as we can about it, I think is uh, something that we've been able to do lately. It's also good to have some of these opinion makers, you know what I mean? I mean, every political news discussion uh, can benefit from uh, getting a little bit of opinion. There's a reason why the newspapers have opinion sections and uh, many news programs on television have opinion sections. And that's kind of what we had in our most recent episode with Matt Lewis. So good to have that in the mix. And then uh, us having the opportunity to kind of share our areas of expertise and, and our opinions about um, all kinds of news topics, some about Washington, D.C. politics, but uh, also about global politics and about other issues in the news. Yeah, because a lot of the time, folks uh, that do politics podcasts focusing on D.C. just focus on D.C. And they don't realize that the world around them is impacting D.C. And D.C., is impacting the, the world around them, specifically foreign affairs. I'd just like to add, John, to highlight, to underline, to put an exclamation point. What really makes us unique and different, it, there's two things in my mind. Number one, we're an independent podcast where we're able to get folks from wide-ranging ideologies. For example, we have Chairman Bruce Westerman coming on, who's a Republican, and we will have a Democrat member of Congress come on our show later on. And just to be able to take that deep dive with a member of Congress where their time is very valuable, or for example, Fox News White House correspondent Jackie Heinrichs and Huffington Post's SV Date, just two different ends of the political spectrum. We've built up a show here where we're able to get everything. And 
that's very important because a lot of politics folks that that host shows have their one point of view and they invite people who are from their team on that show. So that's that's one differentiator. The second differentiator is the range that we provide, which you just went over. We do the Q&A deep dives with our think tank experts, with our subject matter experts and our authors and uh, like aviation journalists, for example, where we can get into one specific topic. We also do the columnists, like you mentioned, um, which is more of a free-flowing discussion. Then lastly, you and I will do shows when it's on topics we both agree on, first off, uh, but also that we have expertise in. There was a comment that our recent guest made that had me thinking a little bit about what it means to be an expert. Um, uh, you know, we had on our last episode, Matt K. Lewis, columnist at Daily Beast, conservative columnist. And we were talking about the media a little bit about the way that different commentators approach the media. And uh, he mentioned one popular media personality, this uh, gentleman, Ben Shapiro, and saying that from his perspective, Shapiro is one of the sharpest and, and smartest. And it's partly because uh, Shapiro makes lots of declarative statements. And he's very clear what his opinion is. And, and he says things as fact. And our guest, Matt, was joking about how when he first started getting into commentary, he tried to do a bit of that and make declarative statements about things to show that he had a clear, determined opinion. And uh, I was chucking a little bit. And we were talking about this as well, because my perspective about what sounds intelligent and, and how intelligent people talk is, is a very different one. We've been bringing on a real subject matter experts, academics, uh, think tank uh, directors, and so on to come on and talk about their areas of real research, you know, academic research, social science research. And the way the figures like that often approach discussion is not uh, declarative and opinionated. It's quite different. It's often one of hedging and nuance and saying a little bit of this, but also a little bit of that and, and trying to find the contradictions and paradoxes and pointing them out to make sure that you've covered them so that the, the audience is getting this complex picture of, of the way something is in a certain field. It's about always trying to make sure that you're not claiming causation when there's only correlation and so on and so on. And so getting used to that sound of expertise and sound of intelligence you know, the feeling of it, <laughs> the, the uh, sort of atmosphere or culture of that world and exposing our listeners to it when we can, I, I think is important. But also, we have to acknowledge that opinion makers shape events and they, they shape history in a lot of ways. When we think about who are the most influential thought leaders, it's often not people who are scholars in university Often it is media figures who can be quite combative and determinative and uh, declarative about things that have shaped public debate by that kind of uh, force of perspective. You know, when we think about the major thought leaders throughout American history, we're often thinking about people like that. So it is important to interact with those kinds of ideas too and, and challenge them and engage with them. And when there's an opportunity to have kind of a debate uh, so I think those two different approaches to analysis and news discussion both offer something important. But on that note, John, I'd just like to say in, in February, if you're a liberal listening to this show or you're a conservative, uh, know that we are going to continue bringing on liberals and conservatives to this show and trying to actually provide a platform with thoughtful, 
and meaningful and pointed questions to our guests, but also giving these guests the opportunity to share their views so that we can get outside of our media bubble, outside of just listening to our team that, that we agree with, and actually hear from folks that probably very likely have similar goals to whatever your tribe is trying to accomplish, just different ways of going about it. So I just wanted to kind of highlight that, John, as, as we move forward and we continue to book guests uh, across the political spectrum. We turn now to California, where police continue to investigate three mass shootings they've happened since Saturday. NBC's Dre Gray is in Monterey Park with the very latest on these tragic events. As the investigation and mourning continues here in Monterey Park, the state of California now dealing with three mass shootings in as many days. The first here, 11 people killed inside the dance studio just behind us here as they were celebrating the Lunar New Year. The second in Oakland, one killed, seven injured. And the third just yesterday in Half Moon Bay in the Bay Area, seven killed and one injured there. And the first and second here in Monterey Park as well as in Half Moon Bay, there are a lot of similarities. Older Asian men, the suspects, the gunmen, according to police, and, and attacking members of the Asian community. Very sad news lately is that there, I believe, has been three mass shootings in California, actually. And I want to say, John, your quote-unquote typical profile of a mass shooter and this is where you get Republicans saying we need mental health of late has been younger people, students, you know, early 20s. This time, though, in at least two of the shootings, I believe it was a 68-year-old man and a 72-year-old man. So I just wanted to kind of open it up. We just had comprehensive, which some would argue is comprehensive gun legislation pass the Senate last year in the 117th Congress and was signed into law. Uh, and we still see these type of tragedies. So I just wanted to get your take, see if there is a legislative fix and what you're seeing these events through. Well, I think you're pretty familiar already with what my position is, which is that guns should not be legal to sell to ordinary civilians, that there should not be um, the commercial sale of firearms in the United States. And that we're in an environment of extreme proliferation that's led to this huge public safety problem that we see here that we don't see elsewhere. Uh, but I think that you've identified something important, something that I've also been thinking about and, and speaking about recently, which was that we see the idea of a profile of a killer being challenged very much by current events. And we're seeing that in a situation where anybody can have a gun, uh, we're seeing all sorts of people commit these kinds of crimes. And uh, they really do have one thing in common, though. There is one profile in common, and that's that they're all men. I think that every mass shooter that we've identified publicly, or at least to my knowledge, has, has been male. I know that in San Bernardino a few years ago, 2016, 2015, there was a uh, terror attack where the firearm was the weapon of choice, as usual. And it was a couple that were the killers. It was one man and one woman. So maybe we've got half a case where a woman was a perpetrator, but generally the killers are all male. And we've seen that uh, domestic violence incident is one of the biggest predictors of a, whether someone will commit these kinds of crimes. We've spoken about that on the program before. 
And of course, we know that domestic violence incidents is also heavily male correlated. But the age factor that you've just identified, it's extraordinary that in the last week, we saw a uh, 72-year-old man commit mass murder. And we also saw a six-year-old child kill someone with a gun. I I knew that recently a six-year-old child had shot a teacher because that had been in the news. And I did a Google search to see if it happened in the same week as this 72-year-old man committed mass murder. And when I searched six-year-old shooter, I found a second case of a six-year-old shooting someone with a gun that occurred in the last week. Um, The the six-year-old that shot the teacher, I think, was two weeks ago. But this week, we had another six-year-old, a second six-year-old in a different state in the United States, kill a child with a gun. So we, just like you've said, we've seen how any type of person, especially men, um, are capable of doing this. And just like they are anywhere else in the world, we know that people in the United States aren't less uh, mentally healthy than people in other parts of the world. They're not less depressed than people in other parts of the world. They're not less prone, uh, more prone, I should say, to abuse drugs, to commit acts of domestic violence. But the difference is that we made it so easy and available for them to procure a weapon that will allow them to commit more damage and more harm. So that's a policy decision that we've made. And um, although it's, uh, again, very distressing to see how little forward movement there has been on this, the more and more cases pile up, it seems harder and harder to ignore the obvious. So I'm going to take a, a little different approach to this in that when these tragedies do happen, especially man-made, folks tend to want a quick fix that something that is black and white and will fix the issue, address the root cause. And some people in society tends to look to policy and they look to policy to prevent mass shootings in the future, for example. Both those that are opposed to guns may look to policy and then when a policy like the last one that we just discussed passed in the 117th Congress is passed into law and then a shooting like this happens, some on the other side of the ideological spectrum will point to that policy and saying, see, there's no point in passing gun legislation because it's not going to eliminate all of these types of tragedies. So I just wanted to focus in and say that the way the United States currently is, the Constitution the mass proliferation of guns. There's more guns than people in the United States. I think functionally, it is impossible to ban guns. This is my personal opinion on it. Whether or not I think they should or should not be banned, I think that it is almost a non-starter policy-wise because it's just unrealistic. So then the next step that I take is, what can policymakers do? And And I think that ultimately it's mitigation measures and that as long as you and I are alive, John, we will continue to live through these type of mass shootings uh, until there is a much more comprehensive approach uh, taken to this by legislators. But at the end of everything, I don't think there's a solution. And I think that unfortunately, these shootings will be happening as long as you and I are alive. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely not impossible to ban guns. We didn't have the national right to for an individual to buy guns until uh, 2008. I mean, for most of American history, the, the current regime, the current understanding about what's possible for gun control was very different, where we recognized that it was in the national interest, in the interest of public safety to heavily regulate, and in most cases, ban 
guns. I mean, the reason that the United States military was originally organized was to prevent civilian stockpiling of firearms in the Whiskey Rebellion, right? We know how the founders, people who wrote the Constitution, thought about this. They did not think that ordinary civilians should be stockpiling weapons. And they took extraordinary measures to prevent that from happening. And it wasn't until very recently that we got into this mindset that ordinary people should purchase weapons commercially and that that should be tolerated by the highest levels of U.S. law. So it's a recent innovation in our system. It's been incredibly dangerous. We've seen since that period this extraordinary increase in mass murder and also ordinary homicide and suicide, which is where most of the tragedies are really occurring. If you look at the numbers of gun deaths in the United States, they're predominantly single homicides or suicides. It's not even these cases of mass murder that are so shocking and also shockingly common. It is definitely not impossible to do something about this. Uh, Every other society in the world has, including us, until 15 years ago. Um, It's just very difficult. And I think that when it comes to a big policy challenge, people should be willing to deal with the difficult thing. And if you're not, you should not be involved in high office. You should not be involved in the business of government if you're not interested in tackling a challenge just because it's difficult. Well, John F. Kennedy, he said, we try to go to the moon not because it's easy, but because it's hard. I mean, that's what government uh, is meant to be. We're, we're trying to bring people into these offices who are focused on problems because they're difficult and understand that those are the, the problems where you need the scale of government and the unique tools that it offers. Um, certainly, there's no quick fixes. I mean, we should, of course, have a law in the United States that bans private ownership of handguns. That's going to be difficult to enforce. It's going to be difficult to uh, bring down the national supply of weapons, given how far proliferation has gone. It would take a long time for that to decrease, given how much there is circulating. But it's necessary. And if we just ignore it because it's hard, then we're never going to get anywhere. And that, that justification for doing nothing is a strange one. If, if you follow that train of thought, then you should not have government or organized society at all. I mean, what's the point in even banning homicide? What's the point in even criminalizing homicide? Um, if you say, oh, well, it doesn't prevent all murders. Uh, murders are still possible. Murders are still going to happen. What's, why are we even trying? Why do we have any criminal laws at all by that standard? It, it, that's not the way that we think about other problems. So it shouldn't be the way that we think about this one. Yeah. The, the last thing I'll say on this before moving to a different topic that involves weapons as well in a, in a totally different way is that I don't support banning handguns or all guns. And the way that I look at it, John, we look at this through different prisms. Well, first off, political leadership is severely lacking. So let's just underline that, highlight it. Uh, but additionally, there's, you know, a saying in political philosophy, saying in political science, my favorite guy, I'm going to get up on my little stool is Montesquieu. And, and basically, he he said very succinctly that sometimes the solutions are worse than the disease themselves. So I just worry that because of the culture of gun ownership in the United States, in addition to other reasons why I oppose an outright ban, that ultimately it will lead to mass social unrest. And it's just such a part of our culture right now. And 
for the last, you know, it, it's really been supercharged and in, in like on steroids that ultimately trying to solve this issue, which costs 20,000 lives, I think a year was the last stat that I saw, uh, could lead to unrest that ultimately brings down the whole system and creates more suffering and death than what we're experiencing on a yearly basis through firearms. So essentially what you're saying is we should not improve our criminal laws because we're worried that this group of people are capable and interested in committing acts of wide-scale terrorism, essentially, right? Well, I think that we would be trying to legislate out something potentially overnight that is embedded in our culture. And moving away from that type of the charge of terrorism and the ultimate fear of violence is the role that ultimately government should play and and should be really be doing these sweeping legislative changes that overnight impact tens of millions of people's culture. Breaking news moments ago, a major development in the war in Ukraine after weeks of pressure from Western allies, Germany announcing this morning it will send those Leopard 2 tanks to the war zone. Joining the United States in doing so, our Fred Flechten joins us live in eastern Ukraine. Look, this is huge news, right? And very welcome news for Vladimir Zelensky and all of Ukraine. Yeah, yeah, it certainly is. And you already heard yesterday when it sort of was seeping through that this was probably going to happen, that the Ukrainians certainly are very happy. We just got some details from the Germans. They say that their main goal is to create, in the end, the two tank battalions that the Ukrainians are supposed to get. That would be about 88 of these Leopard 2 main battle tanks. However, they also say that in the first step right now, they're going to send 14 of these tanks as fast as possible. The Germans also say they want the training for the Ukrainians to start as fast as possible. There was one interesting nuance that we got, Poppy, from the Germans as well. They're saying that they are going to give permission to other European countries that own these tanks to also send these Leopard 2 main battle tanks to the Ukrainians as well. That means the Ukrainians could get a lot of these tanks very quickly because a lot of European nations have these tanks. Now, of course, we know that all this came after some pretty tough negotiations between the Germans and the United States. In the end, the United States apparently relenting to also sending Abrams' main battle tanks to Ukraine as well. Of course, the Ukrainians pretty happy to be getting tanks both of German make and of American make in the not too distant future as well, guys. One more news topic, which is breaking tonight as we're recording this, and then we'll get into the Oscars, is that ultimately Germany has agreed to send their tank system to Ukraine. It, it sounds like there's going to be 14 tanks, at least in the, in the first tranche. Maybe that's all that they send. But in addition to that, the real news here is it allows for other countries in Europe because these tanks are manufactured in Germany. So Germany has to authorize the re-export of this weapon. It allows those uh, countries like Poland, for example, to provide Ukraine with tanks. Uh, This is very important. We're not military experts here, but in the news from talks we've listened to, content we've consumed, these could be potential game changers in the spring for the much-awaited and planned next Ukrainian offensive. So, John, I, I think this is pretty big news. It's very positive news if you're the type of person that ultimately wants to see some type of diplomatic end to this war, because it feels like we are additionally up-leveling our arms to Ukraine to put them in a position where ultimately they can make it known to Russia that they're not going anywhere. This is a losing effort for Russia, no matter how long it takes, and bring them to the table. So 
So just wanted to outline that and hear your thoughts. I'm looking forward to us being able to have a discussion with an expert on military equipment who can explain to us, you know, what is the difference between these Leopard tanks and other weapons that either are available to Ukraine or that they might already have the ones that are manufactured in the West versus Central and Eastern Europe or elsewhere, uh, how they might actually be used in the battlefield, what difference it will make in the tactics and strategy as, as the war unfolds. All of that is important. I mean, that's kind of the most important thing in the immediate term, right? Because that's what this dispute or kind of conflabulation was really about, right? Are Ukraine going to get these specific items and when? But in another sense, there's a meta aspect to all of this, which is the alliance analysis. <laughs> uh, the consequences for the uh, the, uh, the NATO alliance and what we can read into that dynamic from recent events. So I went to a French university for my master's. I had professors who were people from the French war colleges, former chief admiral at the French Navy. And uh, I was sort of embedded into uh, the European defense mindset and the conversations and arguments within that universe. Generally, there has been this significant debate inside of Europe about how close uh, the uh, alliance should be to the United States and to what extent the European defense should be dependent on the United States. And the French often argued for a kind of European strategic autonomy, especially French strategic autonomy, but also larger continental European autonomy. And this has been a point of disagreement between France and Germany, between countries um, in the, the Baltic states and in Northern Europe and the French. And the war in Ukraine presented a new phase of this entire discussion. And there were different ways in which things might have played out and different directions in which Europe might have gone in responding to this much more acute security crisis within continental Europe. The first was to embrace the renewed American interest in Europe um, and allow the NATO alliance to be fortified with this U.S. security umbrella as its uh, fulcrum, as its spine, uh, given the massive amount of uh, U.S. armaments and defense support that was going to Ukraine and Europe broadly at this time. The other opportunity was for Europe to start taking its security much more into its own hands and saying, now that we're reminded of the importance of defense, we are going to be the proactive actors on these matters. We're going to take the first steps. We're going to become much more responsible for our own defense. And immediately after the escalation in February, uh, the new chancellor of Germany, Olaf Scholz, seemed to suggest that that was the direction that he wanted to go. He gave a big speech announcing an unprecedented increase in defense spending and uh, a new concept of European security. And in the months since, he hasn't exactly delivered on that promise. And I think what we just saw was another culmination of this whole longstanding argument about where Europe should go and how it should think about its defense. And we saw that Germany, you know, the key economy in Europe, one of the key defense manufacturers in Europe, um, openly insisted that they wait for the United States before they take steps on providing these armaments to Ukraine. And it's something that I think for those that 
were pushing for strategic autonomy and to move things in that direction, uh, they will find it incredibly infuriating, frustrating. Yeah, and, and I just want to highlight that you, you did mention that Schultz and Germany were kind of holding the tanks, the the leopards hostage almost until there was U.S. action. And I, I think that this just underscores that the United States is still global hegemon, still the security guarantor for a lot of the West. And this really can be highlighted by two quotes. So uh, Senator Chris Coons, very well-respected, very knowledgeable in foreign affairs, respected across the aisle, very, very close to President Biden, said earlier today, Tuesday, if the Germans continue to say we will only send or release leopards in the condition that Americans send Abrams, we should send Abrams. So, so that kind of uh, takes the U.S. Uh, approach into account. Even if these tanks, which may not be the most useful uh, for Ukraine, because you got to understand that these tanks are very unwieldy. They get three miles to the gallon of jet fuel. So uh, according to defense officials, it's going to take a massive uh, logistical supply lines and massive amounts of training to get Ukrainians up to speed on these tanks. But ultimately, the U.S. is saying, fuck it. If we need to do this, we will do this so that the Ukrainians can get the tools that they need in their toolbox uh, to fight back uh, against Russia. I think the second quote, and I know that there's domestic politics at play here, John, but it just highlights how much we are back in the United States, how much we have recovered from the absolutely horrible destruction that Trump did to our global standing, to our alliances, to how much countries trusted us, was the quote from the German opposition leader of the CDU, a lawmaker, rather, from the CDU. She said, and I quote, once again, we have to be thankful for the Americans and the role they played in unlocking this. So that's really my main takeaway, John. We have domestic squabbles here at home between Marjorie Taylor Greene and the freaks on the far right saying pro-Russian talking points, saying anti-Ukraine talking points, advocating for a cessation of military support, of financial support from the United States to Ukraine. We also have the recent history of Trump and he's in, these freaks are an outgrowth of him or he's an outgrowth of these freaks, right? Depending on how you want to look at it, where he was trying to dismantle the United States standing on the world order global stage. Uh, and now we are ultimately in a position where those voices have been muted. The United States is here to act and ultimately hold Europe's hand uh, as we provide and convince some of our European partners to provide uh, the weapons and tools that Ukraine needs. So I think this is a great development. I think that uh, the comment that you pointed out from the CDU uh, member, um, it was layered and laced in subtext, kind of the sorts of conversation that I was referring to, these discussions inside of uh, Europe about how Europe should behave on defense and whether they should be proactive and assertive or whether they should rely on the United States. And maybe there's a little bit of sarcasm there in her comment, um, suggesting that the current chancellor of Germany, Mr. Schultz, is one who is uh, reliant on the United States and, and timid to act. And I, I think that you're right in saying that we're in a phase right now with the current leadership we have in Washington that suggests a lot of 
U.S. commitment to Europe and commitment to the NATO alliance and commitment to that U.S. security umbrella that we speak about so often. But considering just how important the U.S. role has been is something that uh, surely strikes a bit of trepidation and fear in the hearts of many Europeans because recognizing its significance in its presence raises the question of the devastation of its potential absence, which is something that Europeans, I think, are keenly, and also people in the Middle East too, and leaders in the Middle East, are keenly aware um, is a plausible development in the near to medium term future. Uh, the last president that we had, as you mentioned, was uh, you know a weak leader, uh, Donald Trump, uh, one who uh, was not committed to U.S. Uh, defense leadership around the world, uh, did not have a stable or reliable approach to key alliances in Europe or the Middle East or elsewhere. I think that many uh, Europeans and others who are observing Washington um, are concerned that someone like him, if not him himself, might come back into office and thinking about what that might mean for their future. I think that uh, his predecessor as well, uh, President Obama, in some ways was viewed as a less reliable ally on the NATO issues, on the Atlantic issues. Uh, you know, in the famous article in the Atlantic, the big profile of the Obama doctrine written by Jeffrey Goldberg, uh, President Obama was uh, very clear and spoke very derisively about European leaders, uh, calling them free riders. Uh, talking about how unsentimental he was about Europe, about how he wanted to, as much as he could, to focus more on what he saw as the emerging and dynamic parts of the world, especially in, in East and Southeast Asia. And the United States, since that point, have always been declaring their interest in doing what they call a pivot to Asia, a focus on the Pacific security issues instead of on the European security issues. And in recent months uh, in Washington, there's been many discussions about security for Taiwan. Uh, there's been the, these war games that TSIs did that we were talking about. There's been lots of articles and all of the big publications about Taiwan. And uh, certainly Europeans are wondering if Taiwan were attacked, whether that would suddenly consume all of the U.S.'s attention, uh, which would then pivot, as has been long promised, away from Europe. And so this, again, increases the urgency, I think, um, on behalf of those who are uh, arguing for a more independent European defense pillar, because by seeing just how important the U.S. role has been in this entire experience, it's a reminder that if the U.S. were not there, Europe would be in an even more dangerous place and the necessity of preparing for that possibility. The nominations for the 95th Academy Awards are finally here and everything everywhere all at once. The Banshees of Inishirin and all twice. The nominations for the 95th Academy Awards are finally here and everything everywhere all at once. The Banshees of Inishirin and all quiet on the Western Front are leading the pack. On Tuesday morning, Oscar winner Riz Ahmed and Allison Williams revealed the nominees in 23 categories, including Best Picture, Best Director, Best Original and Adapted Screenplay, and the awards for Actor and Actress in Lead and Supporting Roles. So, John, I want to switch to another point of American exceptionalism, which is our film industry, our entertainment <laughs> industry. And I know that this is 
near and dear to your heart. We will have long deep dives on the two topics that we just discussed, but I do want to get into the Oscar nominations because this will be part one of, I'm assuming at least two, right? We'll, we will bring an expert on as the Oscars get closer to actually go through the films and we can kind of do a redux of what we did last year. I think that this kind of fits into our social shows, right? We're going to have one on sports before the Super Bowl. We're going to have one on baseball at some point. Things that impact United States culture, global culture in all of these instances. Oh, well, um, it seems as though we're going through a lot of my favorite topics today. We're talking about gun control, U.S.-European alliances, and now the uh, Hollywood and uh, the Oscars and the entertainment industry. And um, I just got, I kind of want to preface this by saying that, uh, you know, I, I worked in the entertainment industry and I also wrote my international law thesis about the entertainment industry. So it's certainly an issue that is uh, near and dear to my heart. I will say that, and I tried to make the case for this a, a bit in my, in my thesis, is that I think that the actual real world importance and significance of the entertainment industry is something that's often discounted. I think that uh, there's some data, you know, some data that that I use in in my in my writings. Um, in the 1990s, uh, the entertainment industry was the second largest industry for the U.S. in net exports. It was a huge economic driver, and it was a field in which the U.S. had real primacy. And the U.S. was able to communicate through its industry, you know, social values and culture um, and ideas about the world. And the popularity of Hollywood entertainment abroad uh, is really kind of the elephant in the room whenever you talk about the global film industry. Um, I'm a big fan of films that are not from the United States as well. But um, for Americans, uh, I think that those that are based in the U.S. domestically often don't even realize just how important this industry is to the United States and its grand strategy and its economy. And this hegemony and, and primacy. I mean, the default cultural um, elements and aspects around the world, you know, the face of globalization is generally Americanization. It's American culture that has become global culture through the exports of uh, entertainment industry in large part. And we talk about all of our big industries in a serious way all the time. We talk about energy in, you know, the newspapers, you'll read about it as a crucial matter for for security or read about the energy markets in that way, about manufacturing, about the tech industry. But we often don't treat entertainment in the same way, even though we probably should. We should think about it as this strategic aspect, uh, it, more than just uh, a social element or something to entertain us. It's something that really matters in, in the real sense. At risk of going on too long about this, I just want to give one little anecdote, one little example about this. You know, the United States doesn't do entertainment as propaganda the way that some other countries have at least tried to do, like China in recent years, you know, with Wolf Warrior. The United States um, generally has a pretty liberal industry where people can make uh, movies that make the, the points that they want to make as filmmakers or as entertainment companies. And often those are in line with uh, U.S. values because they're a reflection of U.S. culture. But sometimes that's actually inadvertent in a way that benefits the U.S. Um, so, you know, you think that you're only communicating ideas and values through propaganda. I want to give an example of how the U.S. is benefiting even from this liberal approach to media. There's a great movie from 1940, The Grapes of Wrath. 
the adaptation of John Steinbeck's novel by John Ford, the director who is considered by many people to be the greatest director who ever lived. And The Grapes of Wrath is sort of a socialist adjacent critique of U.S. capitalism and the U.S. economy. It's a depiction of the poorest people in America during the Dust Bowl who are suffering, who are living in abject poverty, who have to migrate across the country because of the destitute economic conditions that they faced. So this, you wouldn't think, would be a vehicle for U.S. propaganda at all. And the Soviets didn't. They did not want many American movies to play in their cinemas, but they were happy to promote this movie because it seemed like it was this socialist critique of the destitution of American capitalism, right? However, and this is th- this is the part that <laughs> is, is worth paying attention to for American thinkers. When this movie played in Soviet cinemas, what did the audiences notice? I would assume that they noticed how fucked they were under socialism. The audiences who were watching The Grapes of Wrath in the Soviet Union noticed that even this poor family, the Jode family, oh, even this poor family had a car. So this poor family being depicted as, uh, you know, in utter shambles in U.S. society was still pretty well off compared to the Soviet Union families. Even this family that was created as a fictional example of the absolute horrors of the worst cases in the American economy had things that the people in the Soviet Union in the middle class couldn't afford and didn't have. And so even though this movie was made as the opposite of propaganda, as a liberal expression of criticism of the American status quo, it was still in in some regards uh, a vehicle for American ideas and values internationally. And so that's just one example of why the entertainment industry actually matters and uh, how it serves the United States to have a thriving industry. And um, that's why I think people should take the industry seriously and think about it critically. Well, this is just a couple, one anecdote that that I have, and it is a very limited personal experience anecdote, maybe not as deep as your grapes of wrath soliloquy there. However, back when I was a young lad, I was a lifeguard. It was, you know, my last year of high school, I believe. Um, I had uh, took in... um, couple Bulgarian kids and also a couple kids from North Macedonia, as the kids say the country now. And it was very interesting to me. We, we also ultimately took in a Russian at the end of the summer as well. But each of these young men learned English from watching Hollywood movies. And specifically, one movie stood out to, to all these kids, right? Uh, and they didn't necessarily grow up together. I think uh, two grew up together. The 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 folks from Bulgaria, folks from North Macedonia, but it was Rambo, which is the U.S. military. And they ultimately watched Rambo on repeat and used it to learn English. So I think that one, that's a cool story. I have people in my life that were affected by the export of Hollywood films. But number two, that is just a very clear example of how movies and the entertainment industry are another arm, maybe one of our strongest arms of our soft power here in the United States. And ultimately, you started off by saying energy and security. They do uh, ultimately help improve national security for the United States um, by strengthening ties with countries and people across the world. So that's my short little anecdote there, Mr. Gunnison. But onto the movies, maybe. Yeah. So it's interesting talking about 
the Oscars while we talk about the primacy of American cinema around the world, because that in some ways has been the story of the Oscars. The Oscars are really an American award, even though they sometimes nominate movies that are not English or not from the United States. Uh, They only really make sense if you consider them to be an American award, because certainly no thinking person would really claim that for 93 years in a row, the best movie in the world has always been an American movie, except for once uh, in 2019 when the best movie was from Korea. And when that Korean movie won, we had our president at the time opining for great movies like Gone with the Wind, which was what, like 40 years ago? Gone with the Wind is from 1939, so it's, it's been more than 40 years ago. 70 years ago. But it remains the um, it remains the highest grossing movie of all time when you do inflation adjustments. it's, it's it, it, You could make a strong argument that it's the most popular piece of culture that the U.S. has ever produced. And it, it's a movie that, uh, although it was an, you know, a great movie, is uh, questionable um, on matters of values and in uh, its perspective on U.S. history. But that's a whole nother conversation. What I meant to say was that something that I always watch for when I see the Academy Award nominations come through is if any of the nominees are not American uh, and not in English, because historically the Oscars have been so dominated by American movies. And so this year we had a couple of the nominees in in the top categories that were from elsewhere, uh, <laughs> the first of which was All Quiet on the Western Front, which is a movie in German by, I believe, a German director starring an Austrian actor uh, based on a German novel. Uh, but it was distributed by Netflix. And um, it, it, towards the end of the kind of awards season, it emerged as Netflix's best chance at getting nominations. So um, it did have the backing of this huge and critically important U.S. company. Um, I'll say that uh, it's actually not the first movie, not in English, that's been Netflix's big awards uh, contender uh, a few years ago, Roma, which was a movie in, in Spanish about Alfonso Cuarón's childhood in Mexico and um, his family's relationship with their housekeeper. It's a really, really good movie uh, to anyone who hasn't seen it. That was a movie that was uh, heavily championed by Netflix and was their big contender. So they've been injecting a little bit of internationalism into uh, the affairs. And then the other one that uh, is kind of an international contender is Triangle of Sadness, which is by a Swedish director. The movie is in English, and I believe that it is a Hollywood movie. I think that it's, um, I hope I'm not wrong, I think it's Neon that are that are behind it. Uh, but it is from a gentleman who has kind of built his career and reputation outside the U.S. and who actually won two uh, Palm Door Awards, which is the top award at the Cannes Film Festival. For non-American directors, especially ones of a certain kind of uh, class and prestige, uh, the Cannes is, is bigger than the Oscars. It's the bigger prize to win. And movies are made to compete there, not at, at, with the Academy. And this movie, Triangle of Sadness, already won the Cannes Prize and is now um, contending for the Oscars as well. So that's the only one of the top nominees that I actually haven't seen. I've seen all of the other ones. And um, I thought that it would be maybe the first year that I saw them all before they were announced. But when uh, Triangle of Sadness was announced, I was I was thwarted. So it's going to have to be uh, coming up soon in my watch list. But let's let's start with All Quiet on the Western Front, because I think it's... yeah. A really cool, almost juxtaposition to Top Gun, right? 
So my take on this movie, and again, it's just w- from watching it on Netflix and you know reading the subtitles and feeling really good about myself after sitting through the whole movie that was in subtitles. Um, and it was sad. It was very, very sad. My my takeaway was it was in stark contrast to a lot of the recent war movies that we have seen that got widespread attention from mainstream media, specifically what comes to mind. I've watched Dunkirk like 10 times. Uh, It's these movies that, maybe even Top Gun, that glorify war, right? It's the almost like the Michael Bay big booms and uh, special effects and everything. Uh, Whereas this movie, it, it follows around this gentleman, World War I, trench warfare, and it just shows how awful war is from the opening scenes where there's these young boys, and that's really what they are, going through the intake process of the German military, and they're getting uniforms. And and at one point in one of the scenes, there was uh, the name tag, I, I believe, of a soldier that had presumably died, and they were just recycling this uniform. And the young lad was like, what is this? And the person giving him the uniform was like, oh, oh, this happens sometimes, just a mistake. Don't worry about it. And that was kind of the ominous tone that was being set. And then throughout the movie, John, I I just kept hearkening back to that scene and thinking, what if I was in this position? This This is not like war is depicted in most movies. This is absolutely terrible. These folks are starving. They're being blown up. It's absolutely grueling mentally and physically. And I I left the movie with a profound sadness in a way that I came away also appreciating the film. I've got quite a bit to add, as you might have guessed. And I want to start with one of the first things that you said, which was about subtitles. And this is something that I want to mention because I remember Bongino when he won the Oscar for Parasite saying, you know, as soon as people can get over that one inch barrier of subtitles, they'll unlock so many great movies. And I love that quote, and it was a great sentiment. But it also acknowledges that for many people, subtitles are a barrier. And there are legitimate reasons why they might be. Maybe people have difficulty seeing. Maybe people get a headache if they look at text for too long. Uh, Maybe the text is too small because um, of of your eyesight, uh, or it's too fast. Um, there's plenty of legitimate reasons why subtitles might be a barrier for some people. And what I want to mention is that there is actually an, another option, which is dubbing. And in the United States, we've stigmatized dubbing um, as if it's uh, kind of uh, a crappy way to watch a movie. We associate it with watching uh, Hong Kong martial arts movies uh, on TV and watching them for the camp value of, of mismatched audio. But um, outside the United States, dubbing is very uh, mainstream, very respected. When I worked in the uh, TV industry in the Middle East, uh, we did studies to see if people preferred subtitles or dubbing when we put on stuff in English that needed to be in Arabic. And we found that 90% of people wanted dubbing instead. So Americans, don't be afraid of dubbing. People in the rest of the world think dubbing is fine, even if Americans have stigmatized and say subtitles are the only correct way. Um, If dubbing is a better choice for you, go ahead and watch it dubbed. Uh, Don't let subtitles be a barrier at all. A lot of the great Italian movies that that have been made are 
only available dubbed because they would cast actors who spoke different languages and they would just as a rule dub everybody. So if you watch a Fellini movie or if you watch uh, Sergio Leone, like The Good, The Bad and The Ugly and that kind of stuff, it's dubbed no matter how you watch it. It's not even a choice because they, they just made the movie to be dubbed. So don't be afraid of dubbing. As a child, I w- you know, I was a v- pretty slow reader. So it took me a while you know, ap- until I was reading books in high school and even college for my reading to really, really, really speed up and, and be able to watch subtitled f- films, John, so I could keep up with the speed. One thing that helped me, though, assuming that there's no accessibility issues, right, for our listeners, um, is I started to watch some TV shows here at home with the subtitles turned on. So I'd turn on the subtitles just because for some reason, maybe a scene, I was struggling to hear a word and I thought the word was very important. And that just happens, right? And what I noticed was I just left the subtitles on and then I would watch the English movies, English TV shows in subtitles. So I got used to watching just regular stuff that I could totally understand in subtitles. And then when I switched over to watch some foreign TV shows, Israeli TV shows, primarily, I found that, oh, I prefer the subtitles to the dubbing. It adds a little bit maybe of nuance. It isn't lost. Yeah, I read some analysis that suggested that now that non-English language television was more available in the United States through Netflix and so on, uh, what was that show? Um, Money Heist. I watched that dubbed, actually. Oh, yeah. Well, there you go. Uh, But also uh, Squid Game was another one. So when these shows were introduced to the United States, it started customizing American audiences to watching things that weren't in English just for entertainment. And we associated non-English language audiovisual material with these homework type art house movies from Bergman and Fellini and uh, Tarkovsky and all this. And once people started realizing that stuff that's on English can also just be entertaining because they're watching it as television shows instead of movies, maybe it opens a little bit of a door to watching movies that aren't in English. And, you know, the Korean stuff like Parasite, um, that's a great place to start if you just want really entertaining, but smart and well-made stuff that's done in English. But back to All Quiet on the Western Front. It's the second adaptation of All Quiet on the Western Front to get a Best Picture nomination. There was an American version that won Best Picture back in 1930, 1931. And what's interesting is that this is the fourth movie in the past four or five years that's been either a remake or a new adaptation of the same material that's gotten nominated uh, as a previous nominee. So uh, this year, there's that. And then last year, we had a new version of West Side Story. One West Side Story, 1961, won Best Picture. Two years before that, we had a new version of Little Women, when a previous Little Women got nominated for Best Picture. And the year before that, we had Stars Born, when a previous version of Stars Born got nominated for Best Picture. And this is kind of interesting because Hollywood now has gotten oversaturated with uh, sequels and remakes. And seeing, I mean, these aren't exactly remakes, they're more like new adaptations, but it's similar to a remake. It's, it's a new version of something that already exists as a movie. And so seeing the Oscars embracing that is interesting, given that that's the drift the industry has been on, in the same way that it's interesting to see the Oscars nominate two sequels for Best Picture this year, uh, Avatar and Top Gun, given how saturated the industry has gotten with sequels. So even though the Oscars seem like they're a little bit protected, like from all the superheroes, from some of the other trends, we are seeing superhero stuff get nominated, like Joker and Black Panther. 
and we're seeing remakes and we're seeing sequels make their way into the best picture slate. So that's interesting. The other thing uh, that you're talking about where um, the movie doesn't celebrate war, it shows the horrors of war. Uh, it, it shows the experience of a soldier and um, how it's not what he expected, how living in a trench is miserable. I've noticed that there are tropes about how w- different wars are portrayed in cinema that are almost universal. Uh, you reference this. Movies about World War II are heroic. It's a just war. The people fought in it were heroes. Um, there are some exceptions to that, you know, like come and see a Soviet movie. But generally, that's the rule. Movies about World War I are sad and miserable and show the horror and futility of war. Uh, there are some exceptions to that, like Lawrence of Arabia. But generally, that's what movies about World War I are like. And I've seen lots of movies about both wars, and I'm very familiar with these tropes. And so that possibly limited the effectiveness of this movie on me because I know what the politically correct way of depicting World War I is, which I think is the correct way to depict World War I based on you know, the historical consensus about that war. But it is familiar territory. Um, I will recommend some great movies about World War I because a lot of people think World War II has been better depicted in cinema, and I think that's probably wrong. Paths of Glory by Stanley Kubrick, another movie about the futility and horror of war, uh, the unfairness of war, about uh, you know the uh, lions led by lambs, about how the generals are eating uh, banquets in their quarters while the people are down in the muck dying, just like this one. A great movie from 1950s. Another one, Grand Illusion, the first movie non-English to be nominated for Best Picture by Jean Renoir uh, back in 1938. Another movie about the futility and absurdity of war. One of the greatest movies ever. Great movie about World War I. This movie is very much in the in the footsteps of those movies. And I think it was very effective, but again, it is a bit familiar because we're at this point very familiar with the archetypes about World War I. Well, if I'm being honest, John, normally I just watch the movies glorifying war because I like the bangs and booms. And I say that in all seriousness. So the all quiet on the Western front, what like I just like turning off my mind, man, uh, looking at the screen, seeing a good guy, seeing a bad guy, kind of like Ben Shapiro, right? Everything's in black and white in these <laughs> dumb, pulpy war movies. But I, I really enjoy it. And um, so this was something out of my comfort zone. And I really do recommend that, that folks watch it. Now, uh, hoping that we can switch gears very quickly into Top Gun. I watched it actually again the other day just to take some notes on this for our show because there's obviously, you know, the U.S. military exceptionalism. You have the, I don't know what the fighter pilot, the fighter plane was, but ultimately you have a plane on, you know, display. I'm sure the defense industry and, and whoever made that plane was very happy about that. Um, and you have the hero, Tom Cruise, who's like just this godly Captain America type soldier doing the impossible. Um, however, I, I did think there were some uh, very, you know, well done aspects and tensions with how the movie opens up. And I, I'm going to just focus on two, which is the movie focuses on Tom Cruise. He's kind of over the hill. This may be his last hurrah. 
And one of the quotes from Ed Harris is that ultimately the future is coming and you're not part of it. And that was in relation to the second point that I wanted to bring up, but it was really just Tom Cruise like fighting against Father Time. I invoked Tom Brady, for example. And despite being old, despite being over the hill, despite somebody who really should have a desk job and shouldn't be in the practical applications of warfare, he's out there bucking the trend, living his passion. And I bet that that speaks to uh, an older generation of Americans that were watching that movie and resonated. The the second aspect, John, that I, I thought was really cool was where that quote is from. Uh, the future is coming and you are not part of it. And that was in relation to fighter pilots in general. It was talking about how these fighter pilots, it's only a matter of time that they will be replaced uh, by drones. So if you take that away from the military aspect of things, it shows that this aging guy is trying to find his place in the world and he's dealing with massive technological change that will bring disruption and for the moment, this guy's holding on to everything near and dear uh, that he knows about, and um, he's kind of powering through it. So although the technology really wasn't explored that much in, in the movie, like the drones and stuff, I thought it was a, a powerful plate setter and important topic to kind of introduce because this is something that the military has to deal with, but it's also something we all have to deal with, no matter your generation, no matter the time that you've lived on this earth, it's just our generation is going to be dealing with it um, at an evolving rate. So those were the two takeaways, John, that I have. I, I think that that's a very smart way of looking at that movie, really, that it's about fighting against obsolescence. And that applies to those fighter jets, just like you said. Uh, it applies to Tom Cruise's career as an actor. A lot of these other legacy sequels that we've we've been seeing in the last decade, like Star Wars and Jurassic Park, are built around the older generation of stars handing the baton on to a younger generation. And in this movie, it was kind of funny because it was recreating that premise, but the main character refuses to actually do it. He's brought in to train young fighter pilots, and it's up-and-coming actors like Glenn Powell and Miles Teller, but the character refuses to just teach them and let them go and fly the mission. He has to go and fly the mission himself. And it's Tom Cruise himself saying that he refuses to step down as an action star and wants to continue to be the one uh, flying these planes, doing these stunts, and having his name on top of the title. Um, it's also about cinema, and it's about a certain kind of cinema fighting against obsolescence. Uh, Tom Cruise and Chris McQuarrie, who uh, he's worked with on the Mission Impossible movies, they put out uh, videos telling people how they should watch movies, that they should turn off the motion uh, blurring features. Uh, Tom Cruise put out videos during the pandemic showing himself going to the cinema and saying, you need to go to the cinema. Uh, and he, he was wearing a mask and saying, see, you can even do it in a mask. Who cares about the pandemic? You can go and telling people they have to go to the cinema. He put out a video at the front of Top Gun, if you watched it in theater, saying, thanks for coming to cinema and watching it. It's fighting against what many in the industry feel is uh, the end of their business model and the end of their feasibility as a commercial industry at the same scale that they have been because of the advent of streaming and the decline of cinema. 
So it is really a movie about fighting against obsolescence in all these different regards. And the other thing that's interesting to note is, you know, we started off this conversation talking about why Hollywood matters for America. I mean, we're talking about somehow subtle or inadvertent expressions of American values, culture, lifestyle can make their way into the movies like with Grapes of Wrath. I mean, could you ask for a more overt uh, (laughs) communication of Americana than this one? I mean, the movie practically wears it on its sleeve that it was made in deep cooperation with the American defense sector. Uh, Not only the actual Pentagon and the Department of Defense and the proper military, but defense contractors and manufacturers for whom this movie is a fantastic advertisement, Um, which also ties into the discussion we'd been having about military equipment in Europe earlier uh, on in in this talk. Given the, the real popularity of this movie, that's not artificial, that it really connected with audiences, you can see how valuable it, it is as a tool for communicating these things about the United States. And, and to be very clear, it reson- some movies resonate with one side of the ideological spectrum or the other. This resonated resoundingly across the political spectrum, right? You had your hawks on the left and your hawks on the right. And, and folks maybe that weren't even hawks that, that just enjoyed this movie. And it did lean heavily, John, into the nostalgia, right, of, of the, the first Top Gun movie. But I think one other thing that I wanted to point out is that there was, at one point in the movie, there was a Taiwanese flag patch on Maverick's jacket, which is a tribute to his dad who flew a mission with Taiwan during the Vietnam War. And there was a huge, huge fight over this, whether or not the movie was going to, the the producers and the studio were going to remove that flag and basically try and allow this movie to be played on mainland China. And originally they were going to remove the flag and bend the knee, so to speak, to the CCP government. However, they ultimately reversed course and said, nope, we're leaving the flag in. We're gonna. We're just gonna ride it out, and the movie was banned in in mainland China. And you can go into the economics of that and why that's significant. But it, at the end of the day, it's just another example of our values, which which you talked about. There are a lot of folks in the United States. Uh, I don't want to speak for you, but me myself, I really value Taiwan and everything it stands for, and I'm right there with them. Should there be a conflict, right, hand in hand, advocating for U.S. support. Uh, and reportedly, purportedly, everybody on Capitol Hill would say the same thing that I just said, right? It, it's like one of the topics where people virtue signal, we love democracy, we're strong, we're America, we're going to keep it in. And ultimately, despite losing the economic value from mainland China, I saw articles on this, John, and you can get into it, that the movie still did really well economically, really well in the US, really well overseas. And maybe this is obviously not only an example of the power of the U.S. film industry, but folks were saying maybe this is a way that Hollywood can kind of start to maybe ignore some of the requests from mainland China and not kowtow to to everything. Just another example, in my humble opinion, of American exceptionalism. I hope that we can have a full conversation, maybe with an expert guest, about China and Hollywood, because it's a really interesting topic. It's one that I've spent a lot of time reading, writing about, thinking about. Just a few things that I think that we can kind of clarify now. One thing that I want to say is that when people hear about a movie being banned from China, uh, you should understand that 
China have always been pretty restrictive about imported movies. And it's more the ones that do get permission to play that are exceptional. They have a quota of movies that they allow to play with a revenue sharing arrangement. And it's pretty small. It's not that many movies. I, I have the exact numbers because I've written about them in my academic work, but I, I don't have them off the top of my head right now. But it's quite a small number of movies. Through negotiation, the amount was expanded. But recently, especially in the post-pandemic, China have not been giving many movies uh, windows in, in the Chinese cinemas. They have some movies that they, they just play with a flat fee. So you, you get one export fee and you get don't get any of the revenue from the box office. But it's the ones with the revenue sharing that are really the prize spots because the Chinese market has gotten really big over the last 20 years. So movies want to go there and get revenue sharing and they don't allow very many to do so. And there is a lot of politics. There's a lot of corporate relationships at play. Like the American studio DreamWorks always gets those spots because they have a good relationship with China, partly because of projects that they've worked on together, the Kung Fu Panda series. Um, and recently, as trade tensions have been going in this negative direction with China, they have not been letting these Marvel movies play in the Chinese cinemas, which had been very popular there. So it's a big loss for the American industry to not have revenue sharing at the Chinese market with those movies. It was a way of kind of punishing the US. Although I think there's been some signs recently that those movies are going to be able to come back. So when you hear about a movie being banned from China, just kind of keep keep all of that in mind. About the commercial performance, though, of this movie Top Gun, I mean, it was extraordinary here domestically in the United States. Um, it's the fifth highest grossing movie of all time in the United States. If you use the unadjusted numbers, just the pure gross numbers, it's one of only six movies ever cross over 700 million in domestic. Uh, so that's part of why it got these Oscar nominations. I mean, what the Hollywood industry want to do, because the Oscars are an industry award, they want to celebrate things that are popular. And there's misconceptions about this because people have looked at nominees in some of the recent years and said, oh, that's all these obscure moves I haven't heard of. And that was especially true the last couple of years with the pandemic. Uh, but what generally the Oscars have been about doing is trying to celebrate things that have both commercial popular appeal and kind of critical and industry esteem. And this movie certainly has both of those. And they've been so excited at the performance of this one, at the Friends of Avatar, that they're rewarding it in this way. And there is this interest in trying to keep the Oscars as a relevant cultural institution by rewarding these popular movies. And one thing that we've noticed is that some of the movies that have come out in the last year that were angling at awards were movies that were about movies and they were about Hollywood, like uh, Babylon by Damien Chazelle or The Fablemans by Steven Spielberg. And then other movies that were about kind of the arts, like this movie Tar, which is an excellent movie with Kate Blanchett about a, a music conductor composer. And these movies were not really performing very well commercially. Uh, for Tar, the expectations would never have been that high commercially, but for Babylon and the Fablemans, you would have thought that they could have done better than they did. And so I think Hollywood are learning this lesson that even if these are great movies and movies that people in the industry really are excited about and respect, um, the audience doesn't want to see Hollywood talking about itself. The audience wants to see Hollywood talking about America, about war and peace, about uh, other matters that are not as kind of parochial or inside. So is there any other movie, like maybe one or two that you want to briefly get into before we wrap up here? Of the nominees, uh, I would just encourage people to watch as many as they can. It's really fun. 
to uh, you know see the list as a list of recommendations. And it's the same thing for critics lists at the end of the year. You shouldn't look at a list and say, oh, I'm angry that I don't know these movies. You should say, this is a list of things that maybe I should check out and learn a little bit more about. And for these, you know, the Oscar nominations, which are always picked from mainstream movies, uh, there's things on here that people are going to enjoy. I mean, I wasn't a huge fan of this movie, Everything Everywhere All at Once, but it got lots of nominations and people generally seem to love it. So if you like action, if you like a bit of sci-fi and fantasy, I'd recommend checking that out. It's a, it's a movie about a family at its core, but it's also got all these genre elements. Elvis is a movie that I thought was great. It was also a big commercial hit. It's a very strange uh, kind of music biopic. We've seen music biopics in the last few years that haven't been quite as good, like Bohemian Rhapsody, that were just trying to make a by-the-numbers kind of life-and-death thing. But uh, this one has a real artistic flair to it, and it's very funny, very strange, a real twist on what has been a very staid and traditionalist topic, which is the story of the of the musician. Uh, another one that I, I would recommend to a lot of people from the Best Picture nominees that we didn't talk about yet was Banshees of Inner Sharon. If anyone's familiar with Martin McDonough, who made In Bruges, Three Billboards, Seven Psychopaths, um, he's reunited the cast from In Bruges, the two lead actors, Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson, who are great together. And they're also bringing in, you know, the next generation of Irish actor, Barry Keown, who's also great in the movie. Um, it takes place uh, in the west of Ireland, uh, in Ireland, in the Aran Islands during the Irish Civil War. And it's about loneliness and and friendship and what it's like to live in like an isolated community where you have very few people to rely on and, and communicate with and to share your struggles and your daily life with. And for a lot of people in these uh, recent years where people have been more isolated and with fewer people to talk to, I imagine it would be pretty resonant. So that's another one I'd recommend. It's also very funny, even though it's about things like loneliness and and depression. Uh, but um, it is surprisingly quite laugh out loud funny at times. Those are really all of the nominees. I think we've mentioned them all in this conversation. And uh, I would just encourage people to watch them and enjoy and kind of enjoy making up your own mind about them, because that's really the fun part. Then when you see who wins and who gets nominated, you can agree, disagree, you know, have your own position, your own take on it all. So I would encourage that. So we just want to thank everybody for listening through on this episode. Our next show will be with Michael Strain of AEI on the debt limit and really just economic policy a bit. So please tune in for that. As always, like and subscribe the show, share it with your friends and give us a rating. Again, thank you very much. And until next time.